we need to take the time to step back and step away from what we're doing. We need to start um, engaging with our customers and think as the customer, not about the customer. If you are not looking through the world, uh, the lens of your customer and through the world that they occupy, chances are you're going to be trying to create the better mousetrap when actually what they want is a flycatcher. You're listening to the B2B Growth Think Tank, the show that brings you the virtual hot seat where each week my expert guests and I help another business leader by masterminding actionable solutions to a specific challenge they're currently trying to solve in their business. So if you're looking for answers to a specific challenge that you're facing, that if you could solve in the next 90 days would have a huge impact on your growth, send it in to thinktank at thinklikeafish.co.uk and we'll see if we can feature you on the show. My name is Adam King, your host and the captain of the ship of growth consultancy Think Like a Fish. And if you're ready to rethink what's possible for your business and discover the growth strategies, advice and insight to turn this new vision into a reality, let's get started. Hey, Adam here, and thanks very much for tuning in. And as you are, I'm going to make the assumption that you are responsible for generating revenue for an established B2B professional service business, and you're looking to grow your revenue. So what I've got for you, you're going to absolutely love because I've recently released my new revenue multiplier calculator and bonus training where using this tool and following the training, you'll discover how to uncover the hidden revenue opportunities in your business and be able to systemize your growth using seven revenue multipliers that can double your business in 12 months or less. So if you want to go and grab your copy, go to thinklikeafish.co.uk forward slash calculator. Now on to today's episode. Hello and welcome to the B2B Growth Think Tank. Now joining me today to talk business growth and help out a fellow business leader on the virtual hot seat is somebody that has worked in over 500 segments of the market across 23 different verticals. And get this, he's helped over that time his clients generate over 6.5 billion in additional sales. And yes, you heard that right. I said billion with a B. Now, he's got over 30 years of experience in sales and he believes that selling is a service profession, not a self-service profession. And unfortunately, he's also found that not everybody sees it this way, which is why he's a man on a mission to clean up sales because of where the practice has been driven by unscrupulous and incompetent people. He's furious that the financial cart is being put before the customer success story. And he's livid that salespeople are being trained, encouraged and incentivized to essentially lie, manipulate and missell by managers and leaders who are who basically are making the customer pay a heavy price for their greed, their lack of competence and soulless immorality. Now, part of this mission, absolutely, and part of this mission is a global community called Sales A Force For Good, where he is looking for eight tech companies in the 10 to 15 million revenue range who want to grow to 1 billion in revenues by building a good, highly profitable business built on strong fundamentals, with highly engaged employees and customers for life without ever selling out to the greed, the self-interest or the bad investors. So honestly, you're about to hear from someone who's got a lot of opinions and a lot of the right opinions, in my opinion. So I'm just going to warn you to buckle up because you're in for a bumpy but exciting ride as we welcome Marcus Couchy to the show. Marcus, welcome. Thanks for having me, Adam. 
It's an absolute pleasure. So well, yeah, I've, I've kind of touched, yeah, I've touched <laughs> on quite a few things in, in that introduction. So I guess maybe the best place to start is how you've got to this place where you are on this mission to change the face of sales. Well, uh, I've been in sales for probably 35 years and, um, the last 17 years, I've been part of a very large global franchise training network, and I've worked in 500 plus segments of the market. What I've seen is everybody seems to have the same kind of problems. But what, what I'm conscious of is the conduct and behavior of the money behind you will permeate into the business. And that's a quote from my friend Bernard Hornung. Um and what, what I've seen, particularly in tech companies and companies that are um, heavily involved in the venture capital or private equity space, um, uh, is that the emphasis on short-term gain, uh, growth at any cost, uh, drives the wrong kind of behavior. And you see middle management being utterly run ragged. Um, you see the growth in mental illness in uh, AEs, account executives, and SDRs, sales development reps. Um, you see lack of alignment across all of the different revenue operations functions. And the customer is this um, sort of inconvenient afterthought uh, at the end of this long chain of marketing, sales, pre-sales, channel, um, customer success, customer service. Uh, account growth teams, uh, professional services, operations. And then they're sort of at the end of this chain. Uh, everything should put the customer at the heart. And mm. um, my view is that every customer deserves to feel safe whenever they deal with a salesperson. And salespeople need to have the customer's interests above their own. They need to be reliable. They need to be responsive. And they always need to be relevant. Whenever a salesperson meets a prospect or a customer, the customer should leave that conversation smarter, having um, received and derived value from the engagement. And you only have to look at the statistics on how rare that is. Um, so if you are a sales leader, on average, the dial to second meeting ratio percentage is uh, 0.03%. Now, and that's crazy, isn't it? Oh, it's obscene. 98.81%. Um, and that's the uh, that's 4,000 billion adverts are served up every year to people like you and I that get one click or none, lining the I pockets mean, of Google and Facebook with $265 billion a year. Email. It's the amount of wastage in that. Wasted effort, wasted revenue, wasted wasted um, wasted cash that could be used to actually, as you say, serve a customer. You, and your your money would literally be better spent going and blowing it on uh, the tables in Vegas. At least at blackjack, you got a forty two percent win rate. Um, you know, when, when you're talking about email open rates of two and a half percent average. Now, that's the average across all industries across the globe. And I'm sure some of you are saying 20%. That's the open rate. That's not the click-through rate. That's not the buy rate. That's open rates. Um, so even if you're at 20% open rate, you're still doing a terrible job. And that money and that time, the follow-up. You know, I, I come across tech companies 
they say, oh, we're getting a thousand um, registrations for downloads or for demos and whatever. But when you actually break the numbers down and you look at the effective stuff, the stuff that actually means someone moves the sale forward or purchases, you know, out of a thousand uh, people um, uh, clicking on the link, maybe 200 actually activate the download. And of the 200, 20 actually do anything with it. And in the end, six buy. But your sales team is phoning 994 that are never going to buy. Why are you doing that? And so it really angers me that there is this much waste because people do not ask the right kind of questions. And they're throwing money at MarTech and SalesTech, and they've got this technology spaghetti, um, and it's capturing masses of data, and they've got no idea how to use it. It's crazy. Mm. So what's the answer? The answer is to start with the customer. The, the first thing you need to do, and the, again, I bet most people listening to this podcast have no idea what the real customer journey is. You start with mapping your customer's journey. What is the process they go through as they um, realize they have a problem and they have that first thought and they make space? What's the process they're going through? What are the conversations they're having internally? Then they move into passive looking. And they're learning how. So how can you make sure that you are providing them with useful, valuable, contextually appropriate, timely, insightful information? So when they transition from passive to active looking, then they see you as one of the possibilities and they they feel warm towards you. And as they move from active looking and seeing possibilities and moving into the deciding phase and they're making trade-offs, Make sure that you've established why and how you can help. And if you can't help, advise them to go, even if it means buying from a competitor, advise them to go somewhere else. Um, Mm. Make sure that that, uh, their expectations are realistic and that you set them up for success on their first use and then help them engage, adopt, consume, um, and start looking at different ways of um, recruiting. Let's start with this one. I fundamentally believe what passes for great in sales today is not fit for purpose in the modern uh, environment. Um, Your traditional salesperson is hyper-competitive, will to win, which therefore implies someone must lose, often the customer, um, and they um, are driven by money. Well, Henry Ford said a business built solely to make money is a bad business. I'm paraphrasing. Um, The business should serve the customer first. It should serve its people. It should serve its community. The byproduct of that is profit. You also end up with highly engaged employees. Now, companies with highly engaged employees generate 293% higher profit per employee. This is based on a six-year study of the Standard & Poor's um, uh, 500. Um, Mm. 130% higher revenue per employee, turnover is 40% less and 20% higher daily production. So if you're a hard-nosed, soulless capitalist, you should be trying to build a business like that uh, Mm. instead of trying to drive revenue for this quarter so that you can fiddle the valuation uh, and create some myth um, that you're building a great business. You're not. You're building a business that's built on a house of cards. Yeah. And and, I mean, this is... is totally totally uh, aligned in how i see a lot of things i mean the metaphor that i built my business around is think like the fish not the fisherman and it's all about understanding the 
wants, needs, desires, challenges, problems that your client or your customer is facing and then working out the best way to communicate a solution for that. Now, that solution may not be yours. Yeah. But, at the, you know, the whole point is that any piece of marketing that you put out there, it needs to hold its value on its own in order to help them get closer to that end result that they want, even if that's not with you. Well, there's something else that we need to bear in mind as well. Um, your compensation scheme will drive specific behaviors. Mm. So most compensation schemes reward heavily the initial win and the transaction. Now, think about that from the customer's perspective, because for most of them, the experience of dealing with a salesperson is like a drive-by shooting. They turn up, <laughs> they make the sale, and then they dump it over the wall to customer success. And the customer then has to go through the whole process of educating the customer success people of their story and what they're trying to achieve all over again. Um, customer success should be brought in at a much earlier stage in the sale. Uh, the compensation scheme needs to reward everybody who contributes to the customer's success. And therein lies a clue. Um, you get paid a little bit for winning the initial transaction and getting the logo onto your books. You get paid more for adoption and consumption of your product because how many products end up as shelfware uh, or you only use a tiny fraction of the functionality. Um, I think when the big payout should come is when the customer achieves the outcome they originally intended by making that investment. Then there should be another good payout when they renew because you end up, it costs you between six and 21 times less to sell to an existing customer. Now, account growth, account management um, is often you know, a second class citizen to new business because the people who are more forthright tend to rise to the top and they tend to come from new business. Um, mm. Now, if you're making six to 21 times more money, what you keep matters more than what you make. Because that you can reinvest. It's not just about revenue. But again, that's a function of how the investment model is set up uh, and misconceptions. Then um, the channel. Um, your channel partners are worth anywhere from 12 to 50 times any one end customer if you manage them correctly. The problem mm -hmm. is that by and large, what you do is you go out and recruit lots of partners and most of them don't produce. I've interviewed um, uh, leaders in 400 companies and what we found consistently across the board, without any single exception, is that uh, two to four percent of the partners generate 40 to 60 percent of the channel revenue. So what questions might you ask yourself? Well, how do we attract more of those people? Hmm. That well, that's an obvious question. That is that is one question that you could ask. My question would be, how can we improve um, the performance of, of the 97 percent or whatever it was that? You know, is is there is there something that we have missed when we are managing those? Is it just that those are the outliers that are the the kind of partners that are doing the things without us actually, you know, requiring to actually manage that relationship, or is there something missing? I think more often than not, we've uh, not done our homework at the front end to establish whether or not we're compatible, whether their mm. intended uh, objectives and outcomes are compatible with ours, and can we help them be wildly successful? Um, far, far too often, uh, the emphasis is on the transaction. Um, now, if you're setting up a channel, uh, you need to really understand 
who your customer, who your partner is and to whom do they sell? What is your partner? It's just as important as knowing your ideal client profile, isn't it? Knowing your ideal partner profile. And and I don't hear many people talking about this when when you're actually thinking about partnerships. Um, A lot of people... They just think partnerships, then they might might instantly think affiliate or, you know, especially on, you know, online and things like that. And and that isn't what a partner or true channel partner is, is it? No, a a partner could be a channel partner, a value added reseller, a managed service provider, could be a distributor, uh, could be a franchisee, uh, could be a licensee, uh, could be an affiliate partner. Uh, Any of these um, could be partners, uh, strategic alliances, joint ventures. Now, most of your listeners probably already have some form of channel or alliance um, operation in their business. They just don't recognize it. Uh, what really amazed me when we were writing the book, Making Channel Sales Work, is how often people said, oh, right, I didn't realize we had a channel. Hmm. So if they didn't even know they had a channel, um, they were not paying good attention to it. And attention is a currency. You pay hmm. attention. It's an investment. And if it's not paying good attention and investing in those partners, chances are they will not produce. Um, and it's in this setup that it really matters. So don't ever compromise on recruitment, whether it's uh, direct sales or an employee uh, or a partner. Take the time um, to go through the courtship. And I think one of the um, one of the areas where where people don't really think about this when it comes to things like partnerships is. Your clients and your customers are also partners. They can be partners and they should be partners. And, you know, the whole world, you know, the world of, of, you know, do we call them clients? Do we call them customers? Well, I actually think that changing your mindset around this all by actually referring to your customers and clients as partners, that is a massive, it's, it's a subtle shift, but it has a huge impact on how you view your client. And how you view them in your business ecosystem, because that encompasses everything that you've talked about there. It's it's the community. It's the impact that you make. It's the success of your client, but not just your client, the people that they impact as well. It has that ripple effect. And I think if more people looked at it like, you know, our clients, our customers are actually our partners. I think that there is something there that, that well, will radically change how I, your business I think, operates. I think the way we need to think about this is twofold. One is we need to position ourselves as their growth partners. Um, mm. And partners help each other get better. That doesn't mean it's a bed of roses. And it often means that we end up in constructive conflict. Uh, but most people avoid all forms of conflict because they see it as all, all as bad. Um, I, I'm a big fan of Barnaby Winter's approach to uh, treating customers as paying prospects. Um, if they were paying prospects, and it means that you have to stay relevant, and as a partner, you need to collaborate deeply. You need to co-develop solutions with them. You need to understand. You always need to ask uh, the question, what are they trying to do next? And what are the jobs they're trying to get done? What progress are they making towards their objectives? Um, How do they make money? Um, What are their struggling moments? Um, What can we do to help them? If we can't, who else can? And what's coming next? Can we co-develop a solution? Can we still be relevant to them? Because lots of us have uh, dropped a supplier who we love working with, but they were no longer relevant because they didn't adapt um, and they didn't evolve with us. 
Um, if you want to make a load more money and keep more profit, which you can then spend on yourself as dividends, uh, you can pay out your shareholders, you can recruit, you can invest in better infrastructure, better marketing, okay? Keep customers. Don't spend you know, most of your time getting people through the front door and letting them out the back door and replacing 23% of them. And the prospecting tariff and the marketing tariff on that is astronomical. You know, and on cold calling, and this is based on 40 million cold calls a year. On average, it takes 33 dial attempts to get through to one decision maker, unless you're calling a senior decision maker in IT, in which case it's one in 46. It takes 14 effective conversations where you get past the gatekeeper through to the decision maker, blah, 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 to get one meeting. Seven out of eight of those meetings do not result in a second. That's where the 0.03% dial to second meeting uh, ratio comes from. Now, think about the amount of wasted effort. If only you to ask better questions, maybe if you spend a bit more time talking to your customers, having your marketing people, heaven forfend, actually speak to customers, your customer success people early in the cycle and early in your product development cycle, speaking to customers so that there is complete alignment across the whole uh, piece. Um, making sure that you regularly speak to people who are unhappy. Um, Salesforce's research on this is absolutely clear. Companies that speak to unhappy customers have a 600% faster product development cycle than people who only speak to happy customers or the mediocre middle. What because earth, want, as you've said before, you, people don't like having those constructive um, conflicts because that's essentially what dealing with an unhappy customer is. And actually, when you actually when you have those kind of conversations with customers and clients that are unhappy, that is your opportunity to turn them from somebody that's unhappy into an advocate for your business because of the way you actually serve them. And the, the research on this is very clear. An unhappy customer who is handled well, 88% of the time they buy. Now, why would you miss that perfectly fantastic opportunity? Um, I mean, I'm not suggesting that you go out to screw up occasionally on purpose. Um, but you know, to, to go out and speak to unhappy customers, lapsed customers. You can recover them. Um, your existing customers, grow them. I mean, look at your pipeline and, and, and uh, your client base and ask yourself this question. How many of our existing customers are currently spending everything they could with us? Now, I've yet to come across an organization where even 50%, even 20% of their clients are actually buying everything they could. They're buying that stuff from someone else. So you know they've got budget. They have a will to purchase that stuff. And instead, what you're doing is you're blowing it on the least efficient, most difficult, and most frustrating and wasteful part of the uh, lead generation process. Mm -hmm. Speak to um, people who used to work at the companies that you're sell, uh, currently selling to. Customers, customer. Speak to their partner network, their suppliers, their joint venture partners, their family mm -hmm. tree. All of these are wildly you know, wide open. But no, what we want to do is spend our time beating our head against the wall and blaming the brick for our headache. Mm -hmm. And it is it is quite amazing when you really think about it that all of this is spent on that lead generation side of things because i think maybe it's because the kind of people that 
and the kind of companies that run lead generation are actually very good at running lead generation <laughs> and and building buzz and, and all that kind of stuff around the effectiveness of it and, and all the rest of it and it's it appears you know fast and 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 you know push button and, and all the rest of it and you've got to put one dollar in you get you know 12 out blah 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 blah. i, I don't not believe quite that as I, I think I most of them have sold the hype um, they're not actually that's what I mean. reality. That, All right, okay, fine. They're, they're um, selling the hype. They're good yeah. at selling that hype and, and getting people into that sort of frenzy of, right, this is the thing that is going to solve all my problems. Whereas actually, it's not quite as, I don't know, sexy or, or exciting to think, well, we could make more money by actually serving our customers better. Um, well, I, I think it all. comes down to laziness in terms of leadership. They're not asking the difficult questions. Every leader, and um, there, there is a fabulous, truly fantastic book uh, called The Road Less Stupid by Keith Cunningham. And yeah. um, it's a fantastic book. A anyone who runs a business or is in a leadership position must read this book. Um, it's on my Audible at this moment is what I'm listening fabulous. to. Funny enough. <laughs> okay. Um, <laughs> now, he makes the point every single week, leaders, managers, and even salespeople should uh, set aside 40 to 45 minutes a week with them, a pen, a notepad, and no interruptions, no phone, no computers, nothing. And then one gnarly, difficult question. And what will come out of that are not only solutions, but even more important questions. And take your hardest, most difficult perennial problem, and then spend 40 minutes a week trying to work out how we can solve that now, or what we can do, what are the bets we need to make over the next 18 months in order to uh, advance towards our objectives by eliminating these bottlenecks, these obstacles? Mm. Um, what can we do to make ourselves more attractive to our existing customers so that we can uh, work more closely with them as partners where we help each other get better they help us develop product that is relevant to all of our core customers and our ideal customers, and we help them get closer to attaining their objectives. But mm. most of the time, uh, what we do is we just double down. More is not better. More is just more. Better is better. And you need to start by asking yourself better questions so you get better answers. And I can't remember who who said it, but it's, it's something like the... Uh the quality of your life can depend on the quality of your questions or something along those lines. Yeah. And, and that is so true because I think too much of the time we're in, we're in reactive mode rather than actually proactively thinking. And, and, and I remember a long time ago, I think I wrote a, a blog back when, you know, I used to write blogs called the, um, uh, the lost art of, of thinking. And it's all about the fact that we do not now really know how to think or to think strategically, or to think in a way that actually moves us closer to a solution, because we are too often ab absorbed in the how. Like the yeah. only question we know how to ask is how. How do I do this? How do I get more leads? How do I get more sales? How do I increase revenues? How do I improve my profit margin? How do I hire? How do I blah, 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 blah. It's, it, there's no other question. Whereas the, you know, it's it's about sort of really going deeper into that. A lot of the why questions we don't ask ourselves because they are the hardest. Why aren't we growing? Like, what is it that we have missed? Why do our clients only buy 
X from us and then a certain amount from our other competition and, and all that kind of thing. Because you won't necessarily like the answers, I think. And that that's true. But let me give everyone a really simple um, response to that, which is the best question is who? Who has Absolutely. already done this? Go and ask them for some help. Pay them some money. Um, partner with them. Good Lord. Uh, if they've already done it before, uh, I, I set my po- uh, podcast up a couple of years ago because I started wanting to ask the question, who? Um, mm. I've had access to 4,000 years of collective experience in two years. Um, and my thinking has accelerated beyond any anywhere I thought it was possible. Mm. Um, I now have a network. Um, that means that I could comfortably take on any of the large strategy houses, the Accentures, the Baines, the BCGs, and so on. Um, Because every one of the people um, that I've been fortunate enough to engage with by asking who is an A player. They're not um, an MBA trying to pay off a £100,000 student loan. Um, And uh, so as a result, I've uh, found myself in the luxurious position of being able to work with multiple companies because of my partnerships, because I know that whilst I can do stuff on my own, it's much better to bring in people who know what the hell they're doing and have done it hundreds of times before um, and uh, are eminently better qualified than me. Um, And again, I see this as another major problem in many businesses, that people are afraid of uh, bringing people in who are better than them. Crazy. And and we do still see competition not collaboration and i think maybe it's part of our education system that we are taught in a way that basically encourages competition but we then get into the real world and don't understand how valuable collaboration can be i'm not sure western thing it's uh, it's part of the greco-roman uh anglo-saxon kind of culture where we are taught to be very self-sufficient um and Mm. you know the extremists survivalists and all those sorts of uh, slightly loony uh, far right um, now, the reality is that uh, your future success will be dependent on your ability to collaborate. Um, in tech, uh, let's say in the cyber uh, security space, you are one moving part in a machine that is one part of an entire organism uh, that might be an investment bank. And they've probably got 120 different vendors in there. And if you do not understand how to play nicely with your competition, how to collaborate with procurement, how to collaborate with the different users and lines of business within the organization, frankly, the best you can hope for um, is to spend an awful lot of time filling out tenders, winning one in four, where you have a 2.6% chance of winning overall. Yeah. So 60%, according to Corporate Visions and Stanford University, 60% of buying cycles end in the status quo. Mm. Okay, 10.6% um, end up in a uh, an RFP. We have a one in four chance of winning. That means 2.6% of sales cycles end up going to you. Well, hey, okay, talk about inefficient. And 29.4% go to the vendor who early in the sales cycle disrupts their current preferences, who mm. uh, can demonstrate the ROI of change and the cost of staying stuck, who can differentiate from the status quo and all the competitive options and is able to allay the anticipated regret and blame, i.e. the prospect of buyer's remorse. Now, um, way, way too few 
sales organizations really understand this. So, you know, the, the, one of the reasons why uh, the challenger sale took off is because that's exactly what it should be. But giving a 26-year-old who doesn't really understand the back-end um, you know, reality of what it's like to run a business um, and then turning up and telling the CFO you're wrong um, is just mm. going to piss them off. Um, so <laughs> what, what you need to understand, uh, and this is where so many sales and marketing organizations get it wrong, is they don't spend anywhere near enough time developing the business document of their marketing or their salespeople. You need to speak to these customers and understand what's it like to do your job. What are all the different moving parts that are affected by you being successful or not being successful, doing a good job or a bad job? Um, who else is affected? Um, what are the jobs you're trying to get done? What are the bottlenecks? What are the fires you're trying to put out? What are the fires you create for yourself? Um, because you know, most uh, leaders, in my experience, uh, wear uh, two hats, chief fire officer and head arsonist, um, because they become <laughs> a bottleneck. Um, you yeah. Uh, founders and uh, sales leaders becoming the VP of everything. Yeah, it's crazy. So again, build your team because of their strengths. Find people whose strengths make your weaknesses irrelevant. Uh, find partners who have strengths in areas that you are weak. You know, it, it, mm. there, there's so little questioning uh, going on because people are busy, busy, busy trying to do more of the same that doesn't yeah. work. And um, another, it, it brings to mind another book that um, I've just finished on my Audible um, just before the one that you took. It's, it's Who Not How by Dan Sullivan. Absolutely. Brilliant. Like, it's, it's a fantastic example of the power of this. And actually, the way that that book is written, it's actually not Dan Sullivan that wrote the book. Yeah. He got, he got Bruce to write it. Yeah. Um, or, no, Benj uh, Ben Hardy, was it? Ben, Benjamin Hardy. Ben, sorry. Benjamin Hardy, I think. Yeah. Anyway, it doesn't matter. Um, it's just a fantastic example of, of the power of that. And, and, and actually that one question alone can be the most powerful question that you ask for everything. It's rather than how do we solve this problem? Who do we know that could help us solve this problem? I, I used to, when I had my training business, I used to do a scavenger hunt and we'd give them maybe, um, you know, who do you know who, and there were 20 criteria. Only once in 17 years did people come up to me and say, who do you know in each of these categories? I wrote the bloody list. The mm. most obvious person to speak to was me because I knew people in every one of those categories. Mm. And, and they could have been done in five minutes. Instead, they yeah. spent half an hour going around and speaking and they end up with you know five of the 20. Um, mm. And people just don't ask the obvious and simple questions because they keep uh, getting stuck with their nose to the grindstone. My, mm. my pal, Sam Sethi, when he was at Sandhurst, his commanding officer said, Sam, I want you to stand with your nose on the mat. So he stood, dutifully did that. Says, you're a private. Now take one step back. You're a corporal. Another step back. You're a sergeant. All the way back to the other end of the room. Now he's a general because he's got this big picture. And um, we, we need to take the time to step back and step away from what we're doing. We need to start um, engaging with our customers and think as the customer. Colin mm. Shaw taught me this. Um, probably one of the best, if not the best, on customer experience. Um, think as the customer, not about the customer. Mm. If you are not looking through the world, uh, the lens of your customer and through the world that they occupy, chances are you're going to be trying to create the better mousetrap when actually what they want is a flycatcher. Yeah, and I think too many people, too many businesses, they're, they're, they're trying to innovate you know, in, in a world that doesn't actually need innovation, it needs improvement or it needs evolution 
yeah. on the thing that somebody is already experiencing. It's like, I don't need a brand new thing. I need a slightly better version of the thing that I've got because yeah. that will make things a little bit easier. And we try to go far too much towards the, you know, the home run. Well, one of the best questions um, that I've ever learned, and I'll attribute it to Patty Hatter, uh, who is the uh, Senior Vice President for Professional Services at Palo Alto Networks. I, I went to her with an idea and she just shot back, what does it replace? And mm. that's a genius question. Um, not, that so is beautiful. If you can find a way to consolidate a company's spend, um, so, for example, one of my clients is a password-free cybersecurity solution. So no passwords ever. So you don't need any password um, software. You don't need a VPN. You don't need password um, access management. Uh, you don't need or anything that relates to a password. Also, you don't need the support calls. Ten minutes a year, on average, in an, an enterprise are taken up speaking to an agent. So that's 20 minutes a year per employee um, just with that. They spend three and a half minutes a day filling out passwords, which is a useless function because actually it's the single biggest source of breaches. And if you eliminate passwords, you eliminate 80 percent of the security team's uh, requirement uh, to be faffing around trying to put policies in place and policing mm -hmm. them. Now, all of a sudden, you say a lot of money, but you also recover in, in a company of 70,000 people. That's the equivalent of 353 full time employees a year. Now, that's the salary cost, that's the opportunity cost, that's the, um, you know, all, all that stuff. Now, people don't ask those questions. Why? Because mm. they're fixated on selling their ugly baby. <laughs> it, it does bring to mind as well um, a, a similar kind of um, a way of seeing things and, and the kind of questions is, is the, uh, the Amazon example, the Bezos example. And he's often, you know, I think he, I saw an interview or something like that. And he, he, he said something along the lines, I'm constantly being asked, you know, what's going to change, what's the new thing, et cetera, et cetera. But the question that I never get asked and is actually by far the more pertinent question is what is not going to change? Yeah. Like what is going to be consistent that people will always want? I mean, Amazon was built on people not wanting to wait around for um, you know, their, their deliveries. It was, you know, faster, cheaper, better, blah, 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 blah. Those fundamentals, those principles of what we want are never going to change. And it's just about evolving and improving the process to get their customer what they want. That's why Amazon has been so successful yeah. because ultimately say what you want. You might like them. You might not. They give people what they want. As far as I'm concerned, Bezos is a God because it means I never have to set foot in another retail uh, store. I hate shopping. Uh, I, 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 like, I like shopping. I hate going to shops. Mm. Um, I'm an antisocial gargoyle uh, who doesn't like other people. I don't want the faff. What All I want is the convenience of being able to go tap, 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 want one of them, done. And that's my shopping. Yeah. It's brilliant. And that all came about because of that fundamental question. It's like, I don't care what's going to change. I'm not, I don't have a crystal ball. I don't know what's going to be different in 10 years, in 15 years, you know, next year. But what I do know is what's not going to be different. Yeah. And that is about understanding your customer. Yeah. What does their life look like? What is not going to change in their life? And yeah, I, I think there's so much in there and, 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 and around sort of asking the best questions and all the rest of it. So what I want to sort of be able to do is just shift into um, a question and a challenge that has come in from a listener. Hey, it's Adam. Now, just a quick one before we dive into today's virtual hot seat. 
because as the core philosophy behind the show is a rising tide lifts all ships, I'd love to invite you to come and hang out with me, my guests and other business owners and directors of established businesses with a track record of providing good, solid service and a positive reputation in their market inside the B2B Growth Think Tank community, where we all connect, solve problems and help each other grow more profitable businesses. As free to join, so come along, join us at thinklikeafish.co.uk forward slash think tank group. I look forward to welcoming you, but first, let's get to today's virtual hot seat. We're going to put them on the virtual hot seat with a, um, and sort of yeah, get your perspective on this and we'll sort of brainstorm a few ideas around maybe some solutions or maybe we will help this person ask themselves some better questions. Maybe that is ultimately the, uh, the solution yep. that they're after. But um, today's challenge question is, we have had to do some serious restructuring in the wake of the pandemic, both in terms of service offerings and target market. It has taken far longer than anticipated and revenues are at a serious low point and the pressure is feeding down throughout the company and I'm seeing it affect our salespeople the hardest. How do I help our salespeople sell to prospective clients so they don't sound desperate, even though, and this is in brackets, even though we are? Obviously, we don't have the context of, of exactly what kind of business this is, but we can make some assumptions here. So what's your initial gut reaction when you hear that kind of thing? I'm minded of the old Chinese um, uh, proverb uh, or question, um, which is, when is the best time to plant an oak tree 20 years ago? Um, the problem started um, long before the pandemic. Um, the symptoms uh, manifested during the pandemic. The problem was that they were not customer centric. They probably think they were. Um, but when I had my training business last year, um, not one of my clients was uh, trading throughout the pandemic at less than 120% of quota. And we had, um, you know, the, the average range was somewhere between 120 and 240% with a couple of outliers at 3,000 to 5,000% up. Um, and the difference was they start with the customer at the heart. Um, so what are the jobs that your customers are trying to get done? Start with that. Um, what, are the, what can they uh, achieve on their own and where do they need help? Um, what progress are they making? Where are they not making progress? Um, go back and speak to your customers. Find out without trying to sell them anything. And this is why I said right at the beginning and why I'm on this mission. Um, the problem starts when you are selfishly self-interested in trying to hit your quota. Um, because then the default setting is try and peddle them a product. And then you start falling back on features and functionality. Um, that's not what the customer buys. The customer rents outcomes. Mm. And they rent the outcome only when and for as long as it's relevant to them. So how can you make yourself contextually relevant? How can you be timely? And how can you be responsive to their needs? And that mm. means you have to subsume your need to hit quota. What you need to do is you need your management team to stop ragging on middle management and them ragging on sales. And you have to go out and you've got to speak to your customers. You need to understand the journey that they are going on. Um, and they will have shifted. Your ideal customer profile has probably changed. Uh, well, they definitely indicate that in in the question, and I think that you know when they talk about um, 
we've done some serious restructuring, both in terms of service offering and target market. So as we don't have that customer to do that, though. Exactly. That is my fear. Right? If what they have done, if they if they've gone into their kind of black hole and they have thought, right, we need to do this, we need to fix it because maybe their um, their original target client was in an industry that has you know massively collapsed and, and Leisure, that, retail travel. Yeah. yeah, I mean that that's unfortunate. If that is the case, that is unfortunate, and they have to obviously maybe pivot or do something, or maybe they don't because maybe if it's as you're speaking about speaking to their client and finding out what is it now that they need like those options so i hope i'm not doing this person a disservice and and suggesting this is the way that they went i am hoping that they did exactly what we've just discussed here which is they spoke to their customer and they found out exactly what they want not sure Uh, unlikely given that they're still tanking um, based on that question i'll I'll give you uh, one of my favorite examples my good friend simon leslie runs a company called inc Now, he ran 34 in-flight magazines. He was doing 120 million a year, and then the pandemic hit. And he went from 120 million to 10 million overnight. Yeah. But, uh, and he's written a fabulous- Even my gut went with hearing that kind of like drop. That's insane. He's he's written a fabulous book called There's No F in Sales. Um, And it's a strong recommend because his mentality is fantastic. And he looked at the situation and accepted it for what it was. And then he pivoted and he's now bought a television network in American airports off CNN. And so all the advertising that you see in CNN, uh, sorry, in American airports now is done through Simon's business. Um, The in-flight magazines will come back later. Um, He's partnered up with a company called Gap in the Matrix. And what they do is they understand Um, how to unlock consumer decision-making. And so as a result, advertising can now be targeted to individuals, individual uh, travelers, um, so that they buy the £15,000 tag hire watch um, whilst they're on the plane. Um, I I mean, it's just genius. The fact that they've actually taken the step back Mm -hmm. and thought, okay, so how do our consumers behave? What drives their decision-making? Um, th- you can look at um, the, the life cycle of how customers buy. In those first two phases of making space and passive looking, they're not going to be responsive or positively responsive uh, to a sales conversation. This is where you need to create massive value. And this is where your salespeople need to create their personal brand. Um, you know, one of the reasons why my business didn't even take a, uh, you know, take a hiccup uh, when I left my previous uh, franchise and started up uh, my new business was because I'd built a personal brand. Um, mm. And that personal brand has allowed me to build a solid pipeline consistently for the last six months uh, since I left. And I'm turning business away. I've got choice and so on. But your salespeople need to build a personal brand. Um, the next thing you need to do is be able to identify when prospects are moving from phase two, passive looking, to active looking. So there's technologies out there. One, um, and again, full disclosure, I'm the uh, chief revenue officer for this company. And the reason I've chosen to take on that role is because it helps to identify people who are moving from passive to active looking and tells you whether they have a high propensity to welcome a sales call at this moment, this month. Mm. And which of your salespeople should speak to that individual 
because they are the most likely to be able to create a warm relationship and engage in a sales conversation that advances to the next stage. Now that technology is out there, white rabbit intel. Okay, then um, what do you do to move them through that process? Well, you've got to subsume your desire to make the sale and you've got to try and engage with, or you've got to engage with them to understand what they're trying to do. So you stop talking about products. An average uh, advert for uh, a car is car, engine, metal, price. Okay, but actually, great advertising shows how people use the car. Um, so um, it, uh, Gap in the Matrix has just done a campaign for one of their car uh, manufacturing clients. And what's really great about the advert is you see yourself using it and you want more information at the end, even though I've got no interest in an MPV. Mm. I've got no interest in it, but I felt compelled at the end because they'd unlocked that, uh, you know, how people use it. And so uh, seeing the, the through the customer's eyes, you don't think about the customer, you think as the customer. And this is why you need your marketing people speaking to the customer. This is why your customer success people need to be involved, your salespeople. And you need to speak to unhappy customers. Unhappy customers will tell you what's wrong with your product, and they will tell you how to increase uh, product development cycles um, or speed them up by 600%. Who wouldn't want that? That's free advice to make more profit. Um, you need to plan. You also need to be clear about who you do not want as a customer. Um, but the problem is that often, uh, and like the questioner, um, I suspect, what they've done is they haven't really asked themselves who is our, really our ideal customer. Mm. Who are we best set up to serve and to help achieve their outcomes? Um, because I, I remember working um, recently uh, with one prospect of ours, um, and they haven't changed their ICP in 30 years. I mean, that, that, that's four recessions yeah. Yeah, and a pandemic. Yeah. And they haven't changed their ICP, and they were wondering why their sales were consistently plummeting. Yeah, it's crazy. But I, I think that, I mean, there is there is an awful lot in there. I think that this person can take away one is that maybe the way that one of the first things you can do, which I think is incredibly valuable, not a lot of people even think about, let alone do, is that whole help your salespeople create their personal brand, yeah. you know, whatever you want to call it, personal brand, um, you know, authority, whatever yeah. you want to call it, um, no, be known in the marketplace. Um, I I don't think enough people encourage this because of the fear that that salesperson becomes more valuable than the company. Yeah. Or, you know, that kind of thing. But there are many, many examples of this working brilliantly. And one of those is is a previous guest of this show, um, Ethan Butte of Bomb Bomb. They, you know, he's his his entire role is the chief evangelist of the of and, and you sort of think, oh right, he's the chief evangelist of Bomb Bomb. No, he is the chief evangelist for the customer. Yeah. His Absolutely. entire, like their podcast is the customer success podcast. I think it's a customer success. Ethan, sorry if you're listening and I got that wrong, but it's it's all about that. Now, he is his own personal brand and it's not just him within that company. There are multiple other um, people within that company and everyone is encouraged to have their own presence on places like LinkedIn, for example. There's another example of a, a, a company called Sweetfish Media. Um, yeah. They do a very similar thing, and they're actively encouraging their people to go out there. And uh, James Carnaby, his name is, he's written a very good book, um, Content-Based Networking, very, very good book. 
Um, and the, what they are doing, and, and they are actively showing how this is making a dramatic impact on their revenues, their growth. Well, there are three other things I would strongly suggest people do. One, four. Uh, one is start thinking with an infinite mindset rather than a finite mindset. A finite mindset um, has a win-lose because you're trying to take a bigger slice of a shrinking pie. A finite mindset is how do we make the pie bigger? And then you don't worry about your competition. In fact, you collaborate with them. Um, second is um, build a community. Now, for you to do this, you also have to have an infinite mindset because you have to concede control to the community. You're not trying to create a following. What you want to do is build a um, live experimental laboratory where your customers are talking about you behind your back constantly um, and you need to be ready to take the rough with the smooth and you need mm -hmm. to let them take the lead once you built the momentum. The third thing is change your compensation plan. Your compensation plan probably rewards the front-end transaction and winning the logo. Change your compensation plan to reward a little bit for winning the logo, a lot for when the customer achieves the outcome originally invested in products also to achieve. More um, for consumption and adoption, more for renewal, and more for repeat and um, uh, extension business, so cross-sells and upsells. Um, and uh, reward everybody in the value chain who has contributed to the customer's success, not just sales, marketing, operations, professional services, finance, um, product development, because then you drive massive discretionary effort. Um, the next thing is change what you consider to be great in recruitment when it comes to sales. Um, what passes for average in sales, uh, what, sorry, what passes for great in sales nowadays is good at new business, hunter, um, winning mentality, winning mindset, um, money orientated. That creates transactional sellers. Um, change your investor, uh, investor culture and your leadership culture. Change the compensation mechanism um, of how your executive team is measured because they'll tell you that they're customer centric, but when it comes to the end of the quarter, um, they will be ragging on your uh, sales managers and your salespeople to bring in deals at any cost, no matter what. Um, and mm. that drives unintended consequences. And I go back to Bernard's quote, the conduct and behavior of the money behind you will permeate into the business. Um, so check out, have you got the right investors? Are they investing in your business because they want the business to be successful or because they want to make a killing when they eventually exit and only a few people make a lot of money? Um, so look at uh, maybe something like an accretive investment model where uh, you trade publicly listed shares for private shares um, and you invest in profitable, successful businesses and adding another million pounds of profit uh, to the public business um, then increases the share price. So by doing that trade, they automatically get a win and you increase the value. So um, my pal Callum Lang has gone from zero to 300 million in five years just by doing this. It's a fantastic model. Um, wow. And uh, the, the other thing I would definitely look at um, is ask whether or not um, your values are aligned with your customers and your partners. And to finish on this, um, partners. Um, 
you uh, both of you and I have in, uh, interviewed Tom Matson, and he yes. makes the point that it's almost impossible not to 10x your business if you build the right strategic alliances. If yeah. you're trying to grow it direct, this is where a lot of the conflict comes because the direct business will try and steal from your channel. Uh, your CFO will not want to invest in your partners. Um, I think MDF, Marketing Development Fund, is a big, big no-no. What you should be doing is a partner development fund, and you should invest in your partner's businesses and help them market themselves mm. and help them grow their business. Because as a, a partner to your partners, what you should be doing is focusing on making them wildly successful. And when you engage with a partner, my pal Zach Seltz, 30 years um, probably um, uh, over a thousand partnerships in 130 countries. Um, and he's generated hundreds of billions of dollars worth of additional business for the, um, his employers. Um, he always makes the point that when you engage with a new partner, have them contractually agree to give you 50% of the best salesperson's time for the next three months uh, or six months. And um, in that time, have a clear uh, roadmap of what is expected on both sides. Do not give them exclusivity until they have met their side and you have met your side of that agreement. Um, and in doing that, you're putting money in their backs. You uh, get their second or third sale in the first 120 days. Then other salespeople on the team say, we want a piece of that as well. And uh, you see these things being completely butchered because of uh, a finite mindset, greed, selfishness, this desire for control. The paradox is by letting go of control and allowing yourself to think differently, think bigger, um, the pie grows and everybody mm. wins. But again, it does require consistency and it requires um, you know, good planning before you start the partnership. Well, that is unfortunately, or I don't know, maybe fortunately, depending on your perspective, that is the thing that really separates the uh, the the average from the good and the good from the great. It's consistency and it's 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 having that clear path, that clear roadmap. But I think that we just don't. There's too many of us that are just again reactive. We're not really thinking what is that clear path. What do I need to do consistently to achieve? the ultimate goal uh, what is my ultimate goal all that sort of thing so I, I think that there is an awful lot in there that um you know can be you know there's there's a lot of higher level stuff in there if you go back and listen and actually you know i'm gonna have to go back and listen to to, to some of what marcus has just said there because you know there what I, I guess what i want you to sort of you know listening is is to hear that there are many many different ways of thinking and what marcus has just displayed is, is, is kind of like a masterclass in, in thinking, if I may say that. Okay. It, it's, it's kind of like where, you know, what is, what is behind this question? What is the ultimate sort of thing? And, and I think sometimes when I get some of these questions, they're, they're hoping for a, a, a tactic or, or a, a quick fix or, or something like that. Whereas really what, what, what Marcus has gone through there is like the, it's, it's gold. Like you can pull some of that apart and there are, there are a lot of very, very profitable ideas in there. So thank you very much for sharing. It's, it's my pleasure. I'll just finish on one point. You need to start thinking how you can serve others and in serving others, then everything else starts to make sense. Do not think about your selfish self-interest. 
How will you make your partners, your customers, your customers' customers wildly successful? And remember, selling and marketing are service businesses, and we've forgotten that. And that's why we've set up Sales of Force for Good, to remind Absolutely. us. Absolutely. And, and you know, it's, it's the uh, philosophy behind this podcast. It's a rising tide lifts all ships. That's why we invite people to send in their challenges so that as a collective, you know, me, the guest, and also, um, you know, the panels that we do, the live sessions, we can actually help people out there. And this is my version of, of, of understanding what is going on in the lives of, of clients and customers. You know, I'm not guessing anymore with what people are struggling with. I'm having people sending in their challenges and I'm, I'm actually able to exercise my thinking and do it alongside another very smart person that has, has sort of, you know, got the experience and the, uh, the battle scars and, and the expertise in, in very different areas, but we get very different answers. I'm sure if I ask that very same question to any other different guest, we get very different answers, but that is the beauty of it. That is why having your, you know, a community is why having that network and, 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 you know, the rising tide lifts all ship philosophy is you can't do it alone. Like you really can't. And if you think you can, then, you know, I've got news for you. <laughs> you can't. <laughs> it just well, doesn't you, work. You, you can as long as you want to play small. True. Yeah, you, you, you can be an island. But, um, you know, when we set this business up, the idea was that we would um, be able to be highly profitable and grow without taking on staff doesn't mean we don't create employment. We create masses of employment for our partners. Um, but we don't need to take on lots of headcount. Um, and it's down to that fundamental philosophy that uh, success in the future will be down to your ability to collaborate. And collaboration 100%. has to be your takeaway from today. And I really hope that is. Now, before we wrap up, I want to give you that opportunity to talk about that sales of force for good and what you're doing with it and then how people can potentially sort of find out a little bit more about it if they're interested. Excellent. Thank you so much. Okay. Well, Sales of Force for Good is essentially a reaction uh, to um, the idea that uh, we should all worship at the, um, in, in the Church of Finance at the altar of shareholder value. Um, and we want to claw back control and uh, ownership of sales. So there were two studies that came out um, at the end of 2020 one from Gartner saying a third of business-to-business -business customers uh, want a 100% seller-free buying experience. Now, that's a travesty and damning. Um, Two-thirds of buyers surveyed in the uh, state of sales review by uh, LinkedIn said that they consider sales and salespeople to be morally bankrupt. So that was like red rag to a bull. Um, we want to create the conditions so that the next generation of salespeople and sales leaders can be proud. They can look in the mirror without shame or fear and turn up to a party. And when someone says, um, what do you do for a living? They say, I'm in sales, and they do so with pride. We want sales to become an aspirational career choice. But above all, we want to create the conditions for buyer safety. So we're using the hashtag, uh, hashtag pro customer. Uh, if you want the information about what we do, uh, you can do that. I've got some videos up. We've um, launched across uh, all three major time zones. So um, Far East and Middle East, uh, Europe and the Americas. Uh, we've got volunteers. We're setting up a uh, community where we're capturing the lessons, going out with difficult questions, 
like what needs to change in executive culture, measurement and compensation for any positive change in sales to be sustainable? Um, how do we need to change compensation schemes to make the customer the heart of everything that we do? Um, what needs, uh, you know, it is what passes for great in sales fit for purpose? And we're tackling these issues, we're capturing the lessons, and we're making them freely available to everyone in the community forever. Um, so we're looking for volunteers uh, to take each of these individual work streams um, and then debate them, take them into their uh, companies. And we're building the ROI business case and use cases to prove that it makes more sense to behave ethically and um, not burn out. Uh, so to finish on one uh, critical point, um, the waste when it comes to burnout of salespeople, SDRs churning every eight to 12 months, crazy. Um, and a salesperson uh, based on Phil McGowan's research takes three years to hit their full stride. Now, your average salesperson lasts 12 to 14 months, your average manager, 14 to 16 months, mm. your average VP of sales under 18 months, your average CRO under a year, your SDR under a year. Um, you are wasting enormous amounts of money recruiting, training, onboarding, and churning. Uh, you're creating mental health problems, and we want to stop all of that. Enough is enough. Absolutely. And if people want to find out more about that, where is the best place to go? Um, either DM me on LinkedIn, Marcus Kauke, um, just C-A-U-C-H-I. Um, look for me there. Email me, marcus at laughs-last.com. So it's marcus at laughs-last.com. Um, and uh, just get in touch. You know, use the hashtags pro-customer and buyer safety. And um, also, as uh, as people are listening to a podcast, uh, I can't believe we haven't even got on to mention that, or we, we sort of spoke about it, but 4,000 years of uh, collective brilliance um, yeah. with the interviews that you've made. Um, tell us about the podcast and, and where they can find it. Um, it's the Inquisitor podcast. If you go, if you just type Marcus Kauke into Apple Podcasts or, and, and podcast, you'll find me. Uh, I have two podcasts. One's called Scale Ups and Hyper Growth. That's very niche. It's for tech companies. Um, and it's uh, war stories from people who've taken um, startup businesses and turned them into hundreds of millions or billion dollar businesses. So people like Tom Shodorf, Chris Dudridge, uh, Jim Legg. Now, these are phenomenal leaders, Tom Castley. Um, and uh, the Inquisitor podcast, that's the Marcus Kauke one. Uh, we've got 300 plus interviews on there. And we cover pretty much anything to do with sales, marketing, recruitment, customer success, sales psychology, and some weird and wonderful esoteric stuff. But it's always challenging. And you always leave with practical operational advice you can implement and uncomfortable questions. Um, the, the two Muppets in my background on my Zoom are the muse for the podcast. So the idea is that we slap you around and make you uncomfortable. And uh, if you're uh, if you're listening to the audio version and can't see the background, it is, uh, is it Marley and Marley? The, no, uh, Statler and Waldorf. Statler and Waldorf. Um, yeah. The two yeah, grumpy uh, old men who heckle the Muppets. Yeah. <laughs> I'm uh, I'm thinking of the uh, the, the Christmas Carol version. Yeah, of, uh, absolutely. It's on time. But um, yeah, no, um, I'll put all of those links as well um, for all of that into the show notes. So make sure that if you uh, if you miss it, you can just click underneath. But um, Marcus, this has been an absolutely fascinating conversation, and um, thanks very much for your input onto the uh, to the challenge question today. And I guess what I'd really like to do um, with this one, I would like to ask you 
to ask our listeners a challenging question to ponder before we go. Um, what is your customer's journey? Dare you to actually map that out. Go out and ask lots of all the people in your sales and uh, marketing and customer success operation, because I guarantee none of you really understand it. If you understand the customer's journey, then you can start building a strategy from that. So what is our customer's journey? So that is your mission, should you choose to ex- uh, accept it. And um, this message will not self-destruct. So feel free also to uh, you know, get in contact with both me and uh, Marcus with uh, maybe just your thoughts on what that question um, has sort of brought up in your mind. Or if, you're, you, know, if, if you don't know how to uh, even go about that process, you know, get in contact. We can, uh, we can point you in the right direction. So Marcus, this has been awesome. Pleasure. Really, really fun. Uh, I've thoroughly enjoyed it. And the person who sent in the challenge question, if they want to get in touch with me, as long as they're okay uh, being uncomfortable, then uh, get in touch. I'll happily spend an hour with you. Fantastic. Well, that's very generous. So, um, Marcus, thank you ever so much for being here and we will speak soon. Thanks, Adam. So that's it for this episode. I hope you found it valuable. I hope you got some great ideas that you can take away and apply to your business to help you grow. If you did, please share it with somebody else that might also find this valuable because they will thank you for it. Also, to let you know that I have a podcast gift page where I put a lot of resources that I love to share with my listeners. You can find the links to join the Facebook community there and you can get my book, the Conversational Relationship Marketing and the audiobook version all for free, plus a number of other resources I'll be adding over time on that page. So make sure you head there to thinklikeafish.co.uk forward slash podcast gift and you can help yourself to the things that make most sense to you. And if you have enjoyed the show, please make sure you're subscribed. You'll get updated as the new episodes come out. And finally, last favor, please consider giving the show your honest rating and review on Apple Podcasts. I read every single one. They mean the world for me. I love hearing from my listeners and it does help others find the show as well. So if you want to go and do that, I'd really appreciate it. Until next time, have an awesome day and we'll speak soon.